Hello and welcome to Crossroads of Rockland History. I'm Claire Sheridan from the Historical Society of Rockland County. And today we'll be discussing the new book entitled Confessions of a Hayseed DA. In this compelling page turner, former Rockland DA Robert R. Meehan takes the reader through his journey from naive do-gooder to seasoned prosecutor, investigating and solving heinous crimes and surviving an attempt on his life that upended his family's world. This manuscript, completed in 1978, was discovered by Meehan's daughter, Kathleen Meehan Doe, years after his passing. She has edited the text, she's researched cases cited by her father, and interviewed some of the key players whose names appear within the book. Kathleen Meehan Doe will be my guest today. The Historical Society of Rockland County is a nonprofit educational institution and principal repository for documents and artifacts relating to Rockland County. Our headquarters are a four-acre site featuring a history museum and the 1832 Jacob Lovelt House located at 20 Zucker Road in New City, New York. We're listed on the National Register for Historic Places and a designated New York State Path Through History site. And part of our broad and challenging mission is to share the history of Rockland County with the public. And as a private nonprofit institution, not a county or state agency, the Historical Society depends on charitable contributions to fulfill its educational and preservation mission. We hope you will consider making a financial contribution or becoming a member of the Society. You can learn more uh, by visiting our website at rocklandhistory.org, and we'd love to count our radio listeners as financial supporters of the Historical Society of Rockland County. We are live today in the studio, so callers are welcome to join us with questions. The number here is 845-429-1700. That number again, 845-429-1700. Robert R. Meehan was born in 1930. He died in 2004. He was District Attorney of Rockland County from 1965 to 1974. He would later go on to become New York State's Special Assistant Attorney General for Medicaid Fraud and as Rockland County and New York State Supreme Court Judge until his retirement in 2000. The book Confessions of a Hayseed DA was written by him and published posthumously by his daughter, Kathleen Mian Doe, who is my guest today. Hi, Kathleen, and thank you so much for being here on Crossroads of Rockland History to discuss your book, Confessions of a Hasey DA. Thank you so much, Claire. I really uh, enjoy being with you. It's quite an honor. Before we begin speaking about this page-turner, please take a few moments, if you wouldn't mind, just to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. I grew up in Rockland County in in the hamlet of Tolman. Um, I was the second oldest of Bob and Nancy Meehan's six children, I was a member of the Bicentennial class, 1976 class of Suffern High School, and I went on to SUNY Binghamton and sort of majored in political science, which of course is keeping with my family's passions. Um, I have been a communication specialist um, really my whole life. I started as a journalist. I worked in the administration of Governor Mario Cuomo, and I did that for about 10 years. I also worked for a lot of other elected officials and college presidents, and I was particularly proud of my service to the wonderful Harriet Cornell, who is a county legislator now and was the former chair of the legislature, and I, Harriet and I did some wonderful work together. And more recently, I was the director of a non-for-profit in Pennsylvania, uh, which provided after-school activities for middle school kids. 
I currently work part-time as a grant writer. I live in the wonderful beach town of Lewis, Delaware, with my wonderful husband, Hi, who is a bureau chief at the Voice of America. We have two sons. Tim is a real estate agent, also here in Lewis. And Jeremy is just about to start grad school, where he is training to be an opera singer. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Wonderful. So That's a whole other story. Yeah, I'm sure. So when your dad, Robert Meehan, started his career in the 1960s, it was just after the Tappan Zee Bridge opened. So describe the atmosphere your dad found at that time in Rockland County. Yeah, Claire... He talks about that a great deal um, in the book, and as I'm sure most of your viewers know, when the bridge opened in 1955, it dramatically changed the county. I mean, the population doubled in 10 years. And I would say that my father felt that for the most part, the opening of the Tappan Zee Bridge was a very good thing for the county. I mean, it was wonderful in terms of, obviously, transportation, the, the growth of business, housing opportunities, it made it possible for local residents to commute to and visit New York City. And it really made the county much more diverse. We welcomed in many new families, different ethnicities. It became home to artists and actors who wanted to be close to the city but still enjoy sort of the wonderful beauty of Rockland County. So he felt that at, the, at that, for that reason, it was a very good thing. But at the same time, he, he talks a lot about how the crime rate really started to grow after the opening of the bridge. He's, he talked about how they would have to deal with the uh, intrusion of organized crime. Really, for the first time, organized crime started to move into Rockland County, as well as a lot of small-time crooks, you know, con men, um, home improvement swindlers, the door-to-door -door salesmen who would like to prey on the elderly. One of the most telling statistics that he cites in the book has to do with the murder rate. For the eight years prior to him becoming district attorney, Rockland County had two murders. Dad uh, was sworn in as DA on January 1st, 1966, and by August of 1967, he was working on his ninth homicide. And, you know, unfortunately, due to the growth of crime in Rockland, his office also grew. The district attorney's office, when he started, had nine staff members, including investigators and assistant district attorneys. And by the time he left, he had 32. So wow. that's really how much it changed. Yeah. I took away from the book that your dad was quite idealistic. Is that accurate? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> Anybody who knows my dad knows that. I think he would have described himself as a, as a Kennedy Democrat, if that's okay to say. Mm -hmm. He loved the whole idea of passing the torch to a new generation of Americans, that we were going to go to the moon. My dad was very, very patriotic, and anybody who drove by our house on Cherry Lane remembers the flag flying 24 hours a day. He kept a light on it so it could literally fly all the time. Um, in terms of criminal justice, his idealism really led to his belief that there needed to be justice for all. That meant justice for crime victims but, and, and, of course, for their families but also justice for defendants. It's interesting, and there's a couple of incidences in the book where he talks about how you can lose a case and justice can still be served. Mm -hmm. And I think in the end, he felt that that mattered more than even winning the case. You know, and it, uh, the other thing that came across was how confident he was. Is that also an accurate read? Uh, you know, so, so that's, a, that's a great question, Claire, because I will say yes, 
absolutely the father I knew was a very confident man. But one of the things I really enjoyed about reading the book um, was to read about the times when, when his confidence was a little bit shaken, uh, times when he realized that he thought a case was a slam dunk and it turned out it was not at all. You know, I should mention, when I found the manuscript, the title was The Hazy DA. And yeah, I'm going to admit I didn't actually love the title because I thought it was going to be about some kind of a hick, and I really didn't know much about it. But as I read the book, and I realized that the book talked as much about what he did wrong as what he did right, about the things he wished he could have done better, people he should have listened to, the lessons he learned along the way. And so I realized that the book was sort of like a confessional. And so I changed the name to Confessions of a Hay CDA because I, I really think that speaks to what the book is about. Yeah, I think it's a great title. And actually, before we get into some of the compelling cases that are included in the book, I'd love to learn more about how it all came together. So you discovered this manuscript, right? Right, yeah. My, so my dad wrote the book, I would say, probably maybe 1977 after he stepped out. He stepped out at uh, the end of 74. Um, so that's when he wrote the book. And I actually do remember my parents talking about a book that he was working on called The Hazy DA. I, I didn't know much about it. I didn't even know if it was a memoir or some kind of a novel. I hate to admit it, but I was your typical self-absorbed teenager who really cared more about boys and movies, and I never asked. And I assumed he just never finished it. And then, and then Dad died in um, 2004, and I, I started wondering whatever happened to the book he was working on. My uncle, Tom Meehan, he was a very successful Broadway author. He had shows. He wrote shows like Annie and the Producers and Hairspray. And, uh, Tom died in 2017, and about a year and a half after that, I reached out to his widow, my Aunt Carolyn, um, to say I was coming up to New York. Did she want to get together? And she mentioned that she had been cleaning out Tom's office and found a bag of my father's papers. And would I like them? Of course, I, I was thrilled to get them. And I brought them home, and I started going through all these old, you know, notepads with my father's very familiar handwriting. And at the bottom, I found this bound manuscript called the Hazy DA. And I, I have to tell you, Claire, it was the greatest gift I've ever received. Um, and I started reading it. I wasn't even through the first chapter before I knew I had to find a way to get this book published and to share it with people. Hey, we do have a caller. Uh, oh, sure. So we uh, want to welcome them in. Uh, hello, caller. What's your name? Where are you from? And say hello to Kathleen. Well, first of all, thank you, Ms. Sheridan. I love this program and your author. She's unbelievable. I couldn't wait to get my hands on the book. I got it. Oh, I read it. I'm Junior Commander, a.k.a. Justin Schwartz. It brought back memories. Uh, <laughs> I didn't think it was going to be talking about a hayseed heck. I thought it was <laughs> going to talk about Hasidics in Rockland. But oh. pleasantly surprised, it is a wonderful book. I urge everyone, anybody that lived in Rockland County during that growth spurt, will recognize the names. And, and your father, God rest his soul, was a kind, gentle man. And he was right. He may not have won the case, but justice was served. He treated everyone with respect. This was a gentleman's DA. 
he didn't care whether you're Republican, Democratic, even whatever persuasion. He always had time for you. And, you know, this was a caliber that we don't see anymore. And I do remember your station wagon going out. I think he (laughs) should have been the attorney general. And uh, it was scary. Um, And I do remember the time where, you know, during the Brinks robbery. So, and all this other stuff and and the things that he he did is unbelievable. And I am glad he became a judge. This only did a whole big thing a little bit on, uh, on what he has. I urge everybody, this is a book of Rockland. This is a must have. And I can't wait until you come to Barnes and Noble Autograph Oh, thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you, Justin. That's that's a terrific endorsement. Thank you so much. You're listening to WRCR and Crossroads of Rockland History. I'm Claire Sheridan, and today we're discussing the new book entitled Confessions of a Hayseed DA. The manuscript was written by former Rockland County DA Robert Meehan, but it was discovered by his daughter Kathleen Meehan Doe, and she is speaking with me today. I tell you, this half hour really goes by so quickly, but one of the things that struck me as I was reading this, and you sort of mentioned it before, was the advice he was giving along the way. For instance, in Chapter 5, he warns the reader to watch out for new DAs looking for only winners, meaning winning cases. Talk a little bit about that aspect of his writing. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, I'll tell you, I... I think that that really was very, what I would refer to as almost vintage dad. He definitely had strong opinions, always did, and and never never, um, hesitated to share them. Um, And he did spend some time in the book talking about the win-loss record of prosecutors. And he felt it was a real problem that sometimes a prosecutor, you know, not in his office because he wouldn't allow that to happen, but other prosecutors would sometimes pick and choose cases based on how difficult it might be to win the case. Um, Sometimes prosecutors would would choose to let a defendant walk or plead to a lesser crime if they weren't 100% sure they could win the case. So he said, he would say to be be skeptical of prosecutors with this, you know, 99% win rate, because that just means that they're not taking the cases that are going to be a little tougher. And Claire, there's another thing I wanted to mention. Again, it, it was an opinion issue, but my father would sometimes see problems with the laws in New York State, and he really felt that sometimes the laws had to be changed. He, he talked a little bit in the book about the, uh, his efforts to change the rape corroboration law in New York State. Um, as, as hard as it, is, as, as it might be to believe, prior to 1974, the testimony of a rape victim in New York was not considered to be enough evidence to convict someone of the crime of rape unless there was corroborating evidence. Dad thought that was abhorrent. This meant that if a woman was raped, either by a stranger or an acquaintance, the police and prosecutors only had her word that a crime had been committed, they couldn't prosecute. Even if it could be proven that that sex had occurred, as long as he said it was consensual, they didn't have legal standing. So when Dad became president of the New York State District Attorneys Association, he made changing that law one of the top priorities in his administration. He testified before the state legislature. He used all the powers of his office to lobby lawmakers, and the law was changed. And, and I think 
we're all very proud of that. I, I'm going to share with you, Claire, and she knows I'm going to say this, that one of my sisters was a rape victim. Um, it, was, it was the nightmare scenario, stranger breaking into her home, holding her at knife point. And, and this happened years later and in a different state. But it's important to note that my sister's testimony was the key to this man's conviction. So to know that my dad fought to ensure those rights to women who were raped in New York State, it just means a lot to our family. It was one of the biggest things I took away from the book. Absolutely. I mean, I get chills uh, listening to it. And absolutely. I mean, it's a, that is a made a world of difference. So you're absolutely right. Of the cases he writes about, and there's so many in the book, he changed the names of a lot of the the people involved in the cases. But there was one instance where he did not change the names, and that was the bus crash that took place in March of 1972. Of course, this year marks 50 years. There was a, a commemoration a few months ago about it. Talk a little bit about that from your father's perspective. Sure. Well, first of all, the reason... Um, that he didn't na- change the names. And when I went was going through it, I also made the decision to keep the names it's because those names are very well known in the county. Mm-hmm. I mean, the names of the young men who died and the names of the bus driver, everybody knew those names. So it just didn't make sense to change them. So we kept them. And we kept, included an editor's note to indicate that we had done that. Oh, God, Claire, that is a day that anyone alive at that time will never forget. Dad in the book provides some very personal recounting of the details. He calls the chapter Disaster. Um, you know, from first hearing the reports on WRKL just after 8 a.m., and then he, he called the airport and he got a helicopter to fly into the scene. He talks about looking down from the helicopter and seeing the two halves of the bus so far apart on the train tra- tracks. He talks about talking to people at the scene and, and then at the hospital, and the, he had been given an, a list of the names of those children, those students who'd been declared dead at the scene, and he recognized one of the names as the son of a, a friend of his. And when he got to the hospital, the friend and his wife ran up to my father desperate for any information. And, of course, my father couldn't tell them what he knew. He had to wait for the coroner and the doctors to do that, but it was just so hard for him. Interestingly, though, Claire, he also found prosecuting the bus driver to be hard. Mm-hmm. He, he realized that the bus driver had made a horrific mistake, which, quite frankly, he never really owned up to. But he also recognized that the bus driver was a family man and a New York City firefighter who'd taken a second job as a school bus driver. So he had empathy for him. I mean, in the end, my dad didn't actually prosecute the case in the end because it turned out that the driver hired his former law partner to represent him. So uh, Ken Griffith handled the case. But the bus driver was indicted. He was convicted as, as was what should have happened. Um, but the case really haunted Dad, and it also provides, the book provides some great, interesting details about exactly what happened, the testimony of all of the people involved. I will say that one good thing that came out of this case was that it changed the national laws now requiring all school buses have to stop at all railroad crossings. So that is one thing that came out of this. Absolutely, absolutely. So the format of the book is a series of stories based on the cases that he worked on, and it kicks off with Tex Brown, the meanest gal in town. That's the <laughs> name of the chapter. So without any spoilers, talk a bit about this one. I'm so glad you mentioned this one, Claire. This was actually one of my favorite stories in the book, and it was a story that I did not know. In brief, it is the story of a, of a large woman who he called Tex. She had this 
somewhat menacing visage, but a, a little girl voice. Um, in the beginning of the chapter, she has been charged with stabbing someone, but the victim has decided not to cooperate, so Dad had no choice. He had to drop the charges. Shortly after that, there's a murder in Spring Valley, and it turns out that Tex was an eyewitness. So now my dad's entire case depends on her testimony, which, of course, is going to be questionable anyway because of her reputation. But then she decides she doesn't want to cooperate, so she flees the jurisdiction, and Dad has to call for this nationwide manhunt to find her. Um, I'm not going to give away any more of the story, but I just want to say that in the end, my dad came to absolutely adore Tex. He was so fond of her at the end of, the, uh, end of that story, and it really is a great story. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, so it's it's good to leave a little bit of the unknown because we, we want people to get the book. It's, I mean, oh, yeah. it's full of amazing, amazing uh, stuff. So Robert F. Kennedy was a part of your father's life, wasn't he? Yes, yeah, he was. My, he was definitely one of my dad's heroes. Um, dad got to know him um, soon after um, uh, Robert Kennedy became a U.S. senator in New York, um, and he was kind enough to come to one of my dad's campaign rallies. Um he sent a personal telegram to Dad in March of 1968 to let him know that he had decided to run for president. And, and then, of course, he was assassinated a few months later. Um, I'll never forget my dad coming downstairs to wake my sisters and I up. We had just watched him, you know, receive the, uh, accept the winning, or announce his winning in, in California. My father came down to tell us he'd been shot. It was, it was a really bad time, and Dad was, was devastated. I'm sure. What is the most compelling of the stories, uh, in your opinion, in the book? Wow. Well, of course, there's a lot of different stories, but without question, the story that really struck a nerve with me was the assassination attempt against my dad, uh, which actually occurred 49 years ago this week. Mm. He, he was driving home late at night because um, he had a jury out, so it was well after midnight. It was foggy. He was driving on Viola Road, and a car came up quickly behind him, pulled alongside, and the passenger fired two shots at him. And thankfully, Dad sort of recoiled back against the seat, so the bullets just barely missed him. But it was, a, it was the beginning of a very scary time for our family. Um, I was in the ninth grade. I remember my little brother, my parents hadn't even had it. It was like 6 o'clock in the morning. My parents hadn't told us what happened yet, and he heard a radio report that said he had been shot which, of course, was erroneous, but he came running out of the bedroom in tears, just petrified. And I remember we had a lot of sheriff's patrol officers who had to stay in our house, and they had to follow our school buses. I remember them watching me from a distance while I was outside playing field hockey and gym. I remember the bomb scare that happened just a few days later on Mother's Day. We had to leave the house. We couldn't go back for several days. You know, reading, reading the book, Claire, you know that my dad loved movies and television, any show mm -hmm. about crime, mm -hmm. Columbo, Adam 12, Perry Mason, he loved all those shows, and we would watch them with him. But all of a sudden, that stuff became real to us, and they never caught the person who did it. But after a while, you know, we were sure we were safe. It, it just took a long time to kind of feel safe. I'm sure that must have been unbelievable. Did the process of interviewing people and researching these stories on your own did this change the way you think about your dad? Yes. Well, first of all, let me, let me say that I was so fortunate to be able to interview a few of the wonderful people in the book, most particularly Anne Hickey, 
who is my dad's secretary, and I'm sure many of your listeners know her as the commissioner of jurors. Absolutely. Um, she's yep. such a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful person. Absolutely, um, yes. <laughs> um, I, also, I also was able to interview um, or to talk to Dick Van Zandt, who was my, one of my father's investigators, a great friend, and Joe St. Lawrence, Jr., who um, is in the first chapter. He is the young man who actually helped to bring down a uh, serial killer. So that was really interesting. You know, I was always very close with my dad. So what this book did was it sort of brought back to me sort of the younger dad that I remembered from my childhood. He was always so dynamic and, and so full of life, and, and um, that's what this book really brought back for me. I mean, I, I, to be honest, I, I could not even imagine a greater gift um, than being able to read my father's words you know, this is, I mean, I found it 15 years after he died. And so anyone who's ever lost a beloved, you know, parent can really relate to this idea that you're hearing something that you haven't heard before. And you're, you're hearing your, your father's voice in your head. And I cannot imagine a greater gift. Mm, I, I think it must have been sort of perfect, perfect timing, you know? Oh, yeah. So if people are interested in getting the book, which I highly recommend they do, how do they get it? <laughs> Actually, I was thinking that, you know, we're coming up on Father's Day, and anybody who knows a dad who grew up in Rockland, I think that they would love this book as a Father's Day present. Um, it is available right now on all of the major bookseller uh, websites, so all you have to do is type in um, Confessions of a Hasty DA into Google, and you'll find it. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble. Of course, it's the publisher is SUNY Press. It's on their website. And as was mentioned earlier by one of your listeners, I am going to be at the Barnes & Noble in Nanuet on Friday, June 17th at 7 p.m. We are billing it sort of as a Father's Day event, um, but we will have copies of the book available, and, and I hope to get into a nice discussion about Rockland County back in the day. Oh, that's great. So that's June 17th, Nanuet Barnes & Noble? At 7 p.m. Great. So we'll make sure that we post that on our show notes and on our website. What are you going to do next? I have to tell you that writing this book was such a joy for me. You know, not writing. I didn't write it. I edited the book. But it was such a joy. And my whole life, as, as you know from my background, I've been a communications specialist for other people, for, you know, for, for elected officials, for college presidents, and, of course, writing this, you know, working on this book for my dad. And I, I got so excited about the process. And once I finished editing the book, there was sort of about a six-month downtime between finishing editing until it got published. And I, I really decided that it was time to start writing for myself. Um, and so I, I'm doing that now. I'm spending time writing under my own name. And, and, and just I have a big project going on. It's going to take a long time. But I've just decided that th th this is really what I would like to do, you know, at, the, at this time in my life, as well as, you know, spending time with my family and here in beautiful Lewis by the beach and all of that. So, but that, that's what's next, and I'm really looking forward to it. I, I don't know where this process will take me, but it will be interesting to see where we go. Great. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you, Kathleen, me, and Doe for joining me to speak about Confessions of a Hayseed DA today. Thank you so much, Claire. I really enjoyed being with you. Please remember that everything we discussed and a recording of this broadcast will be posted to our website, rocklandhistory.org. And I hope you'll tune in to the next Crossroads of Rockland History on Monday, June 20th, where we'll explore the life and legacy of Amelia Davenport with David Bisea from SUNY Binghamton. 
We're pleased to announce that archive broadcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Tumblr and Instagram. And of course, we have a new exhibition opening up, so visit us in New City. I'm Claire Sheridan. On behalf of everyone at the Historical Society of Rockland County, thanks for listening to Crossroads of Rockland History. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to subscribe to a podcast. So, subscribe to this one. If you're listening on the Historical Society of Rockland County's website and want to get each new episode of Crossroads of Rockland History delivered to you, download Apple, Stitcher, or Spotify, then search for Crossroads of Rockland History and hit subscribe. We release every third Monday of the month. Thanks for listening.